For the last time in this sermon series, would you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. We're going to end the study this morning on verses 20 and 21, uh, as well as give you a little bit of an overview of uh, what I hope we're taking away from the study of Revelation. Um, you know, I think we told you at the very beginning, we were a bit nervous. I, so I'll, I've served here almost 30 years, and in those 30 years, we've never preached through Revelation, um, which is really a neglect on my part for not recommending it, that we do that sooner. Uh, we are a bit nervous to tackle this wonderful book, and now... <laughs> I don't know about you, I'm just, I'm happy to see you, I'm happy to preach God's word, but I'm sad to finish this study. Uh, we hope the Lord has used Revelation to pastor your hearts to a stronger faith and witness for Christ and a stronger desire for his return, and that's what we're going to be focusing on a lot today. Our next study will begin in a couple weeks as we begin a new expository series in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, so if you'll be praying for us and preparing your heart for the study of the Gospel of John. Why don't we stand as we read these last two precious verses, not only of Revelation, but of the Bible. And how wonderful, what a wonderful way to conclude this book, as well as all of Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Can you just say this with me? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Oh, Lord. Well, Lord, we really just prayed really the best thing we could pray. Lord, would you once again change our hearts through your word and your spirit? God, we, we ask that we, we, don't, we don't just want to have the doctrine of your second coming down. We want to delight in your second coming. So would you use the preaching of your word to further that goal for your glory and for the joy of this church and the advancement of your mission? In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to be thinking about the things that make you smile. Thoughts that make you smile, things, hopes, people that make you smile. And then I want to ask you, is the second coming one of the things that make you smile? What thoughts, things, hopes, or people make you happy? Is the thought of seeing Jesus face to face, is that one of the things that you regularly think about as one of your go-to thoughts for happiness. Is the second, second coming of Christ among the things um, that, well, let me put it this way. When you think about seeing a friend or family member tomorrow, who do you think about? And how much do you think about the fact that we could see Jesus's face tomorrow? I just, those are thoughts that I want to have more frequently after this study. I don't know about you. Uh, I mentioned it in our prayer. I just will speak personally. For years, I've believed in the doctrine of Christ's return. But I, just be honest with you, I cannot honestly say that I've delighted in the return of Christ. I, I, I understand the doctrine. It's appropriate. 
It's not that I don't want it, but let me tell you kind of how I process through that. And I'm so thankful for this book and the difference it's making in my heart. When I was single, I quietly hoped that Jesus would not come back until I was married. Anybody else? Anybody else do that? Could somebody alleviate my feeling alone up here? Um, I'll just, I'm just being honest with you. And then when I got married to, to precious Jan, I quietly hoped that we could have children before Jesus came back. Then when my sons grew up and they left the nest, I quietly hoped that Jesus would not return until they were all happily married. So I'm just kind of recreating the cycle here, it looks like. And, and oh, by the way, our youngest son, Josh, will be married a week from tomorrow. Yes, I'm really excited about that. But Jesus, if you want to come back today, I'm good. I'm good with that. I am good with that. I don't know if Josh will be good with that, but I'm, I'm good with that. We're getting just a, the third most amazing daughter-in-law. The Lord's drawn our lines in pleasant places. These are godly girls. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, after they were married... Here we go. You know where this is going. I quietly hoped that I could have a grandchild or two before Jesus came back. And, you know, with each passing year, I just, it's, it's the weirdest thing. There's this expiration date that I'm starting to see. It's not a tattoo. I think it's my expiration date. <laughs> um, it's just a growing recognition that the day of my death is far closer than it's ever been before. And, you know, I can sometimes struggle at the thought of not being married to Jan for eternity. Isn't it weird? Just these different things that carry a lot of weight in my life. And you know, they're not bad things, are they? They're not bad things. John Calvin, he said that the heart is a factory that just produces idols. And he said for the Christian, you know, sometimes a Christian, when you think of idolatry, we tend to go to the radically dark things that are idols. And Calvin said for most Christians, their idols are wanting good things too much. And I think that's been true of me in regard to delighting into the second, for the second coming of my Savior. I, I could confessionally say that I want Christ to come again, but functionally, I've just confessed to you, it's pretty obvious that I have some other hopes and desires that carry a lot of weight, and they rival that of seeing my Savior's face but I have a testimony to give to you. The book of Revelation is changing me. I don't know that, you know, January is when we started this series. I don't know. I'm 62 years old. I don't know that in all those years that I've ever desired Jesus to return more than now. And it's not, it's not because, oh, life is so bad. Jesus beam me up, you know. I want his glory. I want to see him, not to just bail. I want to see him because when we see him for who he is, it's going to be his glory that's astounding us and that we're passionate about. I hope that God has used the book of Revelation in your life like that. How I hope. And if he has, we'd love to hear about it. It, it, you might even have a testimony that God, that, that you might write out and, and, and share that with the elders. And that might be a testimony that would encourage other members of our, of our church family. 
oh, I not only have a greater desire to, for Jesus to return, but the revelation has also stirring in me a greater desire to be faithful, to finish the mission of making disciples locally and globally until he comes. Um, I, I can't say that I'm cured <laughs> of having other things rival Jesus in his return, but I'm so thankful for growth and that the way that God has grown my heart through the inspired and errant, sufficient and authoritative word of God. And you know, I really think that's one of the reasons God gave us the book of Revelation. That if we read and keep the words of this book, we'll be blessed. And when we get to the end, we will have a growing desire to see him come again. I think that's what the book is supposed to accomplish. So this brings us to the last main point of the sermon on Revelation. And it's just a simple one. Because Jesus is coming soon, we must long for his return. And isn't it so pastoral and encouraging for this letter to end telling us that God will give us all the grace we need to make the doctrine of Christ return a delight to our hearts. So just so excited about that. So the first, the first point, <laughs> somebody who's already seen the notes, they said, you have a ton of points on here for only two verses. <laughs> Which is it's so right. But, but we're closing the book. And there's, these are just going to be some quick things that I hope you're taking away from the study of Revelation. So this first point is just called Lessons Learned That Stir Our Longing for Christ's Return. We gave you this quote in the very first sermon of Revelation. It's by Dennis Johnson. And if you'll follow along with me. Johnson says, our interpretation of Revelation must be driven by the difference God intends it to make in the life of his people. If we could explain every phrase, identify every allusion to the Old Testament scriptures or Greco-Roman society, trace every interconnection and illumine every mystery in this book, and yet were silenced by the intimidation of public opinion, terrorized by the prospect of suffering, enticed by affluent Western culture's promise of security, comfort, and pleasure, oh my goodness, then we would not have begun to understand the book of Revelation as God wants us to. Always in every age and place, the church is under attack. Our only safety lies in seeing the ugly hostility of the enemy clearly and clinging fast to our champion and king, Jesus. I hope that the book of Revelation has made a difference in the way that he's speaking here. So let's go down uh, a list. Um, I almost tried to keep this list at seven just because of all the sevens in Revelation. Aren't you glad that I didn't make it 144,000? right? Somebody say amen. I mean, that's... Why are your amens so much more enthusiastic about those things? Anyway, so here we go. Revelation reminds us to see the world as God sees it. And that's why it's called Revelation from chapter one. It uses powerful symbols and imagery to communicate eternal truths and God's unstoppable plan to have a people for himself for his glory and our joy from Genesis to Revelation. So it's, it's, it is a book to help us see what God sees and what things really are. We used this illustration before. You remember 
when Elisha and his servant were surrounded by an enemy army. And, and the, uh, Elisha's servant was just freaking out, and he just thought, this is certain destruction. And Elisha prayed a beautiful prayer. It's a great prayer. The pastors pray this prayer a lot. Parents, I hope, pray this prayer a lot. Oh, God, give my servant eyes to see what's really happening. And that's really what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about Jesus himself giving us eyes to see what's really happening. And you remember the servant's eyes were open and he ends up seeing that those who were for them were more than those who were against them. They were angel armies and chariots of fire. Well, Revelation has a similar purpose and impact in our lives. It reminds us that things are not what they seem. So, so please, I almost would say for every half hour you watch of a news broadcast, go give 30 minutes to Revelation. <laughs> I mean, just that things are not as they seem. For example, here we go. There's just some review. The church in Smyrna appeared to be poor, but it is actually rich and is opposed by those who claim to be Jews, but they're actually Satan's synagogue. Sardis has a reputation of being filled with life, but in fact was dead. Laodicea, these are all churches in those, in those seven churches that we studied early on, thinks itself rich and self-sufficient and has need of nothing, but is actually bankrupt and naked. The beast seems unbeatable able to conquer Christians by just killing them. But in reality, if following Christ results in dying, that death is actually how Christians triumph over both the dragon and the beast. In the eyes of the world, Christians are weak and ignorant and helpless and persecuted and poor and defeated people while we're actually overcomers in whom who loves us. We participate in the triumph of the Lion of Judah who conquered as the Lamb that was slain. The forces of evil, pagan, God-denying, and self-worshipping governments like the Roman Empire appear to be in complete control of the political, religious, and economic forces of the world. Don't we see that around swirling around today just like it was in the days that this letter was inspired? And those governments will use all of those elements as weapons against Christians if you don't compromise your faith. We're going to use all of those threats and all of those phony promises to get you to compromise. And as imposing of those forces appear, it's in reality a fallen system. Every earthly kingdom has come to an end. Do not think that the United States is somehow the eternal city. It seems as though God in this fallen world has sown the seeds of, the, of, of society's own self-destruction when they turn away from God and live for the glory of self. And, and those, the, those seasons of self-destructing governments and economies and those kind of things are just a, the first wave of judgments that God sends as a warning against final judgment. Revelation helps us see things as they are. It helps us to see what it means to be a true follower of Christ versus a mere church attender. That our real enemies are not flesh and blood, but rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Revelation exists to give us eyes to see 
the eternal joy that awaits us when we see Christ face to face. Revelation, the second little point is that it, re- it reminds us to see Christ and ourselves more clearly. And didn't we see that in chapter 1 when we see this amazing glorified image of Jesus Christ with, with this hair white as wool, eyes blazing like fire, sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And remember, this is not what Christ looks like. This is describing who he is like. And then it goes right from there to to teaching us about the seven churches in chapters two and three. And and we talked about again and again, and we'll say it till Jesus comes. The, The greater our clarity is of who Jesus Christ is, the more we're gonna see ourselves more clearly. We're gonna see where we need to grow. He's gonna convict us of our sin, but he's also gonna encourage us about how far his grace has brought us and build our hearts on the promises that he's gonna finish what he began. And all of that comes not by just positive thinking. It it comes from beholding him. Oh, we wanna see him more clearly all the time. We will see ourselves as loved and forgiven and called to make disciples. We'll see ourselves as persecuted and tempted to give up because of sorrow and pain. This is all summary of, that, of those seven churches. We'll see ourselves as, as seduced by the things of the world and tempted to give in to them and compromise our faith. We'll, we'll see ourselves deceived by false doctrine and tempted to create our own version of Christianity that promises prosperity and makes sin acceptable. We're tempted to give in to all of those things. That's the story of every epoch, every age of church history. Those three threats are constantly coming to knock on the door of the church. We're constantly having to deal with the issue of persecution false doctrine and seduction in terms of making an idol the center of your life rather than Jesus. So that's always, so I think that, you know, there's so many things. I, this, this study has done a lot to go, oh, I wish I would have done this differently in parenting. Uh, parents, I would, I would give those three categories and, and help your kids understand this is the battle that you're going to be facing as a follower of Jesus. There's going to be some that are going to be persecuted or threatened for their faith. There are going to be some who are taught false doctrine about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And there are going to be some who are lulled into this thought that, that maybe just a little more money can make me a little more happy. Just having idolatry in, in place of Jesus. It's a constant theme through this book that daily dependence is to be on Christ, daily treasuring of Christ, a daily commitment to his mission, daily repentance of sins and remembering the forgiveness Jesus purchased for us so that we could be overcomers in him. Next point is Revelation reminds us that God is sovereignly reigning on his throne. And I would encourage you to make chapters four and five a part of your regular reading diet. Just to remember, oh yes, God is on his throne. If you want to just kind of summarize some things after you've read news broadcasts or heard the latest economic forecasts and all this, I would encourage you to go back and look at chapter four and chapter five. (laughs) Is God still on his throne? And the church says, Yes, amen. God is our sovereign king. The throne is mentioned 17. 
15 times in chapters 4 and 5. Caesar wasn't in control at the time. Nero wasn't in control. Domitian wasn't in control. COVID won't be in control or whatever else comes down the pike. Whoever the president is is not in control. China, Russia, Iran, the economy, none of these things are in control. God is in control. He's the king of all creation. And his sovereignty is our security. I mean, I just, would you just think about that? Think of what you've been most worried about recently where you just feel like, man, my life, I feel like I'm just victimized by all of that that is swirling around my life. Oh yeah, God is sovereign. And his sovereignty is my security. It's my security. Again, Dennis Johnson, I've read a lot of other people this week, um, but he gets the prize this week. As Christians see societies crumble and collapse, our response should not be terrified alarm, as though our security were bound up with a fragile human network of law and order. But anticipation and confidence, the Lamb is on his throne with God's plan for history firmly in hand. Oh, so good. Revelation reminds us that Christ is Lord over history and over the harvest. So it's really leading in from that quote. Chapter 5, we see that Christ's sacrifice is actually confirming his lordship over all of history. He's the lion-hearted lamb that was slain and risen from the dead. He's not only the Lord of our salvation, but the Lord of all of history. He has authority. Remember, he's coming and he opens the seals and he is ensuring that God's plan of redemption and judgment and victory over Satan and sin that began in Genesis will be completed. Nothing can stop it. And Christ is also Lord of the harvest. And I'm hoping that your heart has been stirred to share the gospel more and more with friend, neighbor, co-worker, uh, parent, while cheering your kids on the sidelines, being, being looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Students with other students. In all of the attacks, in chapter 7, we, we start to get a flavor of this. In the midst of the attacks of Satan through persecution and the seduction of the world through temptation and false teaching, Jesus and his people stand in Christ's victory. And in his victory, you remember what happened? He bound Satan. And he motivates mission and evangelism because in the binding of Satan, in the in the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Satan is prevented from being able to stop the gospel from reaching and saving people from all people groups. And that's illustrated in Revelation as the 144,000, which was a symbolic picture of this, it goes on later to explain it, of a countless multitude of people who gather around the throne for eternity, worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because Satan couldn't stop the gospel from going into every nation. Amen. And so let us go. May that, may that stir confidence in us that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. We're just to sow the seed. He will bring in the harvest. But he calls us to go. So let's do it. 
Revelation reminds us that we overcome in Christ and like Christ. Chapter 12 are just powerful verses that we remember that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives unto death. The blood of the Lamb silences the accusing and condemning voice of Satan that so often paralyzes us and enslaves us to, to just low-grade discouragement or depression. He, th- that voice is silenced because we stand justified by Christ alone because of his saving work for us. We overcome by the word of our testimony. You guys, I really think that there's something here about, about the, the church in the United States that sees evangelism as just kind of an option for Christians. I think the Bible is saying you actually, part of overcoming, part of resisting sin and temptation and not giving yourself into idolatry is giving the message of the gospel to people. It's amazing. Listen, if you ever go with us to, to um, uh, Asia, where, where, where we, you know, have gone for the last, what, five, six years. COVID took a break to that. There, there's something about going to a place and the only reason you're there is to reach people. I got to say, Alan, wouldn't you say, some of the temptations that raise up and that I trip over here in Midland, I seem to overcome them when I'm proclaiming the word of the testimony of the blood of the Lamb. Have you ever thought that maybe some of the ways that your faith is anemic is because, you know, Jesus himself said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That was when, remember, he got the, 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 he took a, a side route to Samaria. The disciples go and get food. You remember the story, and there's the woman at the well. And she gets saved. And Jesus says, you've ever heard the, the disciples come and say, hey, we've got tabbouleh and baba ganoush and hummus and we've got all this great stuff and Jesus eat. And remember Jesus says, oh guys, I'm full because my work is to do the, work, the will of him who sent me. There's a fullness awaiting believers the more you evangelize for his glory. And you know what? It may cost us our life but even that will be overcoming. Because how did Jesus overcome? Through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that's the way the church overcomes. I, you know, we're living in, the, in a time in the United States where Christianity and, and nationalism are getting this weird mixture. Please be careful. We overcome by laying our lives down, not by raising our fists up. So Revelation reminds us that we overcome in Christ and like Christ. Revelation reminds us to remember that our real battle is spiritual. Why is life in this fallen world so hard? Oh, sin and Satan. The dragon, the beast, so the beast would be, we would call persecuting civil government or false religions. They can certainly exert a lot of physical persecution. The false prophet is counterfeit Christianity and false doctrine. The harlot called Babylon the Great. All of these forces combined are working against the church and its mission. 
There was a foreign missionary I listened to one time who said this. He said, I'm concerned that the church in the United States is too often lulled to sleep by a satanic lullaby. It's like keeping a pacifier in the mouth of believers instead of giving them the meat of the word and the mission of Christ. And we're certainly in that, that season of life again with our grandchildren. So I've gotten used to pacifiers again, and, and it's, I've gotten used to the bounce. And, you know, give me that pacifier. Oh, trying to get the baby to go to sleep. Oh, no, shh, shh, shh. Here, here, here's a pacifier, here's a pacifier. And just the picture of that and the satanic lullaby. Can you just picture? It's almost like the devil and the world and all these forces. Oh, no, go back. No, 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 no. It's okay. Binge watch. Binge watch another series on Netflix. That's okay. Shh, shh. Here's a little pacifier, right? Oh, it's, oh, you've worked hard all week. Stay up late on Saturday night. It's okay. You've deserved it. Shh, a little pacifier, little pacifier. The alarm goes off on Sunday. Oh, oh, I know you're tired. The, and what's more important, the Lord knows how tired you are. And he wants to give rest to your body, misquoting scripture. He wants to give rest to your body. Your soul needs rest. But oh no, it's your body that's most important. Shh, hush, hush, hush. Let's get the pacifier back in. We really do live in a world where there's a satanic lullaby, isn't there? Or it's the other thing where you're trying to give the baby a bottle and the turkey keeps sleeping. And you're trying, I'm actually now I'm trying to give you what you need and you're sleeping through it. Amen. <laughs> Little preacher or missionary or somebody there. Book of Revelation is meant to wake you up, make, wake me up. Dennis Johnson again, we need to see Jesus to meet his blazing eyes of heart-searching holiness, to wake up at the trumpet blast of his voice, to respond to his jealous demand for exclusive and passionate loyalty, shocked insensible by the impact of his splendor. We need then to hear his words of compassionate comfort, quelling our fears and quickening our hopes. Aren't you glad for smart guys? These guys, this is awesome. Revelation reminds us that we're living in the end times now. The end times, the tribulation, that's what we've learned in Revelation, is between the first and second coming of Christ. Tribulation is not relegated to a mere future seven-year period. You know, there, from what we can tell from the book, there will be a time when Satan is released from that prison and he will, his mission will to convince the nations of the world to combine their forces and destroy the church. So there, there could be a very horrible time at the end while God is doing great things and saving people. But if we relegate, if your idea of, the revel, of, of, of tribulation and end times is just a time that, you know what, you may never even see it. That's what, some, that's what I think is the danger of some of those doctrines. It's like, well, you know, I don't see those things happening now. Maybe, you know, hopefully that's not going to happen in my generation. You know, it's, it, what that's like, that's like you being in the military and they've called you to study war. 
during peacetime. And you keep falling asleep over page 13. It's way different if they're calling you to study war and you hear the bullets flying by your window. We live differently knowing it's the end times. We plan differently. Our values are different. Revelation reminds us that there will be a final judgment and eternal joy. Sinners rejecting Jesus face judgment. Satan, the beast, false prophet, the harlot, they're all thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus will bring in a new heavens and earth brought when he comes again for his bride. No more tears, death, sorrow, or mourning. We have resurrection bodies fully sanctified. We're going to eat from the tree of life with never-ending fruit. We're going to drink from the river of the water of life with never-ending satisfaction. There won't be any darkness because Christ is the light. We're going to live forever in this garden temple where God dwells with his people forever. And oh, by the way, we're going to see his face. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. And Revelation reminds us that it is a book of worship to inspire our worship. I think it's one of the helpful things that I've learned when we, when we started our study was, did you know Revelation is a book of worship? We've seen it as a book of so many other things. So let me just give you a little, little taste of the worship that exists in this book. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, who created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from every language and tribe and nation and people. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever. Salvation belongs to God. (laughs) Kind of figured that's what I was going to say when I got to it. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, because you have taken your power and begun to reign. Amen. Oh, you guys. And that's just a taste of the worship that exists in this book. And then the second point of of the message is this. So that's why all those lessons hopefully lead to a desire to a delight that he come again. And that's the last two verses of the book. Verse 20, it's the last request of the Bible, the last prayer of the Bible, and that's come Lord Jesus. Just a quick diagnostic. When you pray, how often is that prayer included? And I think for me, I'll tell you, I'm I'm not cornering you with that. It's not a lot included until this book, until the study of this book. Um, and I, and yeah, I go back, why isn't it a lot included? Because I find my delight in other things more than I find my delight in seeing him face to face, which thank God he's changing. Praise God for sanctification. Praise God for his patience and his grace to grow us. 
but I don't know that I have constantly prayed, oh, come, Lord Jesus. And if I do, it has nothing to do with his glory. It has everything to do with my comfort. I'm sorry to tell you. I'm sorry, guys. There's so much about my heart that needs change. I still, even about my Christianity, I still, there's, it still seems to just subtly creep in that it's more about my comfort than his glory. It's more about my comfort than his mission. It's more about my comfort than the, than the edification of others and the salvation of the lost. But he's changing us, isn't he? And isn't it also great that by his blood, all the junk I just confessed to you is forgiven sin. Thank you, Lord. But, but here's something, a little nugget to bounce off of you. The joy is not just in his arrival. I think Revelation is trying to teach us the joy actually is in waiting for his arrival too. And we've been, it's, it's like we've been sucker punched. We've, we've just thought, well, we'll be happy when he comes, but until then we're just like lemon suckers, you know, or something. And there's joy in waiting. So let me give you some examples of that. And where do I get this idea from? Not from me. It's from C.S. Lewis. Oh, of course. Oh, then it makes sense. Part of our joy in life, Lewis says, is not just in, in the thing itself, but in waiting for the thing. How about this? Because the marriage proposal has been given and the acceptance given. Don't you long for the wedding day? I'm, I'm super stoked to see Josh and Alexis married next Monday. So excited. So excited. How about this? Because school starts. Isn't there something that we start desiring high school or college football to come soon? I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. We get excited about it. We get excited about it because Black Friday sales are announced. Oh, we, we desire Christmas to come soon. Because the pregnancy test shouts positive. Oh, we desire the baby to come soon because grandpa and grandma just called to say they're coming for Thanksgiving. Oh, that's great. Gosh, I wish they could come tomorrow. You see what I'm saying? Have, I think the Lord wants to do that in our hearts about his coming again. That, that when we talk about his coming again, we would have as much joy in anticipating it as when we actually see him. And I think the Lord wants to give us grace for that. As a dad, so here's some, some things that I would have done differently. I wish I would have picked a day of the year for us to celebrate the promise of the second coming of Christ. And I wish I would have given as much passion and time to that as I did in wrapping Christmas presents. Now, I'm not, I'll, I'll still wrap Christmas presents. <laughs> That's not, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I just didn't build into my kids a longing a vision for Christ's return and to start planting the seeds of that joy in their hearts. So here's what I would have done differently. I would have, I would have gone someplace beautiful and spent a lot of time outdoors and enjoy it to pieces and then keep telling my sons, guys, you know though, when Jesus comes again, the world's gonna be way more beautiful than this. And even better, we're gonna see Jesus and his smile face to face. Go visit sick people in a hospital or the elderly in a nursing home. And after you've ministered to them, go out to a, a quiet place with your kids and talk about when there will be no more sickness. 
and no more growing old and weak. And even better, we'll see Jesus face to face. Go to a cemetery. I know you guys, this is, I've had so many people say, you're just the weirdest dad ever. I did take my boys to the cemetery a couple times to do a devotional. But it's because they were, they were young and the pride of being a young man and self-sufficiency and all that stuff. And, I, and we would talk about, you know, you can get the prettiest girl. You can be the best athlete on the team. You can make the most money ever. But, but you beat this headstone. Beat death, Mr. Tough Guy. Beat death. And more, beat judgment. You're not going to be able to beat that, are you? You're going to need a savior to beat that. But I would go to a cemetery and talk about the resurrection. I didn't really talk about the resurrection when I went to there with my boys. I was, I was, it was there about the urgency of salvation. How about going to a cemetery and sit and talk about the resurrection and being able to live forever in a body that actually loves to obey the Lord as much as your heart loves to obey the Lord? And, to, and the thought of seeing Jesus face to face and the thought of seeing other Christian loved ones who've already died. Oh, yeah, but seeing Jesus will be the best, won't it, sons? Yeah, Dad, it would be the best. Go to a great restaurant and eat great food and order dessert <laughs> and talk about the tree of life and the river of the water of life and how much better food will taste and how much more satisfying life will be in the new heaven and the new earth. Or even better... We'll see Jesus face to face. Make a list of things that you're hoping for or wishing will happen in the future. And then remember that even some really good things won't always happen. Let's, so let's remember that. And even if they do, we are promised something better than the best thing that can happen on earth when we see Jesus face to face. Those are just some ideas that I would do differently and that I may in, instill in my grandparenting. So um, when we do an Advent series, so you know the tradition typically in Advent is that you, you teach on the coming, the first coming of Jesus. But then after Christmas is done, you don't stop Advent because the last sermon of Advent should be, he's coming again. So we try to help a little bit in that regard with the church you know, the two main metaphors for Christ's second coming are wedding and birth pains. Both create a joyful desire, don't they? For the event to come, and they compel a change of life. So if, you're, if we're gro growing more desirous of the second coming of Jesus, you should see in association with that some changes about how you live and why you live. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you raise your kids, how you do marriage. And just like birth pains, so the birth pains, you know, speaking about the joy of his second coming, but the birth pains the Bible talks about often involve hardships and, and they're really judgments that God is bringing before final judgment as well. Labor pains are what one writer called purposeful grief. Purposeful grief. I always feel very insecure when I'm looking into the faces of moms as a man talking about labor pains. So 
I have no idea. I so appreciate what you go through. I would have no idea what you, what you experience. But isn't it what gets you through the labor pains is you know they're accomplishing something. They're accomplishing something. Very soon the joy is going to break forth when I get to see my baby face to face. And I think even in our world, as we're anticipating the second coming of Christ and we're seeing judgments falling all around us as foreshadowings and warnings about the final judgment to come, precious ones, don't be afraid. It's purposeful grief because Jesus is coming again. Don't forget that. And the last word of the Bible is grace. What a wonderful benediction. God wants us to experience his grace to learn. Alan, you can bring the team. Wants us to, to experience his grace to learn and live all that we've just read. In the times that the revelation was written, this, this was not how you would conclude a book if it was only an apocalyptic book. Revelation is an apocalyptic book. <laughs> That's just not easy to say. Apocalyptic book, but it's more than that. And this is my last chance that I'm going to be able to say to you, aren't you glad that revelation was given to pastor our hearts more than prophesy to our hearts? Aren't you glad? And it's just so fitting that the last word would be grace because what more pastoral conclusion could there be? Grace for you to be an overcomer. Grace for you to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony and not loving your life unto death. Grace for longing for him to return. Grace to endure. Grace to persevere. Grace to have hope in the darkest of nights. Oh, gosh. Dennis Johnson closes us with this. A brief closing blessing reminds us John's hearers, that even before Jesus' triumphant bodily return from heaven, he has not left us orphans or defenseless before our mighty foes. Can you give me back your eyes if you're looking at it? I really, just in praying, I really felt that that was a very timely word for at least a few people. It's, it's one thing for, you, for us to anticipate his coming, but I think there's some that are just so worried right now about the here and now. And the Lord would say this, yes, he's coming again, but he's with you now. He's with you now. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've not left you as an orphan. I've not left you defenseless before the, 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 the foes that you think somehow are more mighty than your Savior. The quote goes on to say, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. With such strong grace accompanying us each step of the way, Jesus' embattled people will have every reason to anticipate with confidence our indescribable joy when we will be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Would you stand? You guys, our study of Revelation might be over, but I pray your reading of Revelation is just on the starting line.
I pray you'd read this book again and again and again. If you could only have time for certain parts, boy, chapters four and five are the theological center of the book. God on his throne and the risen lion-hearted lamb overseeing not just salvation, but all of history. If you need your heart encouraged afresh. So, Lord, haste the day. Say it with me. When the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. I think we might sing that.